Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. In this podcast, we try to talk about important topics in fire safety. Some of those topics are ones that everyone's talking about, you know, batteries, facades, timber, and stuff like that. And there are topics that are maybe as important, but I don't see them talked over, at least not in mainstream media, if I may, not in your normal conferences, not in published journal papers. However, I feel these topics, especially the ones that are related to how safety is being delivered in the built environment. These are fundamental for fire safety engineering. Because even if we have the best knowledge, the best scientific understanding of the fundamental principles that are related to fire safety, if we are unable to create a regime that is based on that and that relies our fire safety on those fundamentals, we're not going to have a fire safe world. So today, one of those episodes where we try to understand how our regulations are put in place, how the safety is indeed delivered to buildings. In this episode, I have invited NFPA's Birgit Messerschmidt, who has spent a good chunk of her career in Europe, having a significant impact over something that we refer to as the reaction to fire and the legislation around that. And that's where we start the interview with Birgit about how the SBI method came to life, how we have defined new Euroclass system for reaction to fire for flammability tests, which is the cornerstone to, to how safety is delivered here in, in Europe. And I try to theme this podcast episode around the, the concept of designing by disaster and SBI and Euroclasses were definitely not designed by disaster. They were designed by choice they were meant to give us finally fire safe environment in a way at least related to flammability for most of the cases this worked out really well but there are some examples in which it really did not and i think it's very important to to understand why that happened and how maybe it was worked around in some areas and how some very interesting features of the system were very soon forgotten and soon the the euro class emerged as the one index to rule them all, not a complementary tool that you can adjust and adapt to your needs. So a very interesting journey we have in this episode. I'm teasing so much because I don't want you to have an idea that it's just an SBI episode. It's, it's much more. And I, I hope we all learn something from, from this discussion and we build some better regulation, better tests, better ways of handling fire safety. Uh, for the future. A very honest uh, conversation. I'm very thankful for Birgit for, for having uh, such an open conversation uh, with me. And I hope you enjoyed a lot. So that's it. Let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host. Before we start the episode, I would like to thank once again all of our consultants for sponsoring this podcast. It has been already a month and I'm really enjoying this collaboration. It has brought a lot of good to the podcast. All of our consultants are a multi-award winning independent consultancy dedicated to addressing fire safety challenges. OFR is the UK's leading fire risk consultancy. Its globally established team has developed a reputation for preeminent fire engineering expertise with colleagues working across the world to help protect people, property and planet. 
In the UK, that includes the redevelopment of the Printworks building in Canada Water, one of the tallest residential buildings in Birmingham, as well as historic structures like the National Gallery, National History Museum, and the National Portrait Gallery in London. Internationally, its work ranges from Antarctic to Atacama Desert in Chile and the number of projects across Africa. In 2023, OFR will grow its team and it's keen to hear from industry professionals who want to collaborate on fire safety futures this year. Get in touch at OFRconsultants.com. And now, back to the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. I'm today with Brigitte Messerschmidt from an FPA. Hello, Brigitte. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to talk to you. I'm excited as well. How, how is life on the other side of the ocean? It's pretty good. Snowy morning here in Massachusetts. So uh, life is pretty good. <laughs> no, we don't have snow anymore in here. You took it all. I'm, I'm happy you're happy. Uh, as I told you, it's going to be a difficult interview because there are simply too many topics we can discuss on the podcast. And even my one hour long episodes are difficult to accommodate <laughs> such discussions. <laughs> But from our correspondence, literally one sentence has, uh, has caught my attention as a theme for this. And that was uh, designed by disaster. And I think it's an interesting thing in fire safety. We, we do, in fact, design by disaster. And in your career, uh, you were involved with, with many, many organizations that were responsible for testing certification standardization. Now you're also in a place that's responsible for, for testing standardization certification. So I, I wonder, like, what does design by disaster mean to you uh, in, in the, the world of fire safety viewed through the lens of Birgit Messerschmidt? But, well, what, what, I, what I mean about that is that, that we have a tendency to wait until a disaster happens before we make changes in, in our code standards or regulations. So we have a system. It works for a while. It's all great. We're all happy. We don't have too many extreme accidents. And then suddenly we have a disaster, like Grenfell, that happened mm. in London in 2017. And we're like, oh my God, we have a problem. We're going to fix it. And we do a little bit of scrambling, a little bit of panic, where we, we make changes in, in the regulatory field. And that then brings things back into order. We don't see another disaster for a while. We go, okay, we're good, we're good. And then we wait, and then another disaster happens. It goes all the way back to, to, uh, using the, the triangle, uh, shirt waste factory fire here in, in New York, mm -hmm. uh, over a hundred years ago, where that, that started NFPA 101, the, the, the life safety code. So many other big fires over time that has significantly altered the codes and, and regulations around the world. So that's, that's what I'm thinking about when I, when I say design by disaster. It is when we see an event that happens that we had not anticipated in our codes and standards. I've once read about the great fire of Rome that it led to like use of stone, increased separation distances and everything. And great fires happened every decade in every major city. Nothing was learned, preserved. I guess the, the moment where we figured out it's, it's standardization and codes, maybe not a stupid way to preserve this type of experience. I guess that's where we started advancing in, in fire safety. Though I'm not sure how big advancements we're making nowadays, but that, 
that's maybe that's a topic for another podcast episode on data and uh, where we are heading. I don't want to go there. <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be next one, you know, and then that could get very philosophical as well. Yeah. Oh, I, I have a, a history of amateur philosophy in the podcast, so that that, <laughs> that, that, that would fit. Um, when you've brought an example of Grenfell, and that was something I wanted to eventually reach in this podcast episode, but I would like to start uh, many years earlier. There was a time in, in Europe where we had a certain ways to define flammability of materials, and uh, we call it now reaction to fire, all the properties that 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 dictate the, the chance that the material will ignite and spread the fire. And I know you were very heavily involved in this part of fire science for a great, great part of your career. And you were actually involved in this in a very interesting time when Europe started moving into unification of these methods, something that led to emergence of single burning item, SPI test method. I wondered, uh, I cannot just not ask you the question, how, how it felt back then like when Europe was changing from all these different methods, from very expensive room corner tests into this unified uh, methodology. It was exciting times. I mean, I, I came into this in, in 1994, uh, right when I graduated from, from university. And, and on, I mean, I graduated without a degree in fire and safety engineering because we didn't have that in Denmark back then. So I had one course in structural fire engineering. Uh, but was lucky enough to start working in the fire lab at DBI in Denmark and was thrown right into the development of the SBI test back. So it was, it was really, really exciting times because what, what was happening was we're looking to uh, replace all the different national tests with one harmonized system. And now coming in green, 24 years old, uh, never participated in a big international project like that. And then suddenly sit in a group where you can see, yeah, there's a lot of really good science here, but behind it was the national interest. So because it became clear to me very quickly that any change that we would make, any, any test that we would make would mean that every country would have to somehow adjust something. And that affects that country's industry that already have their, their products approved to, to existing standards. So there was, you know, Huge powers behind this with a huge interest in what was going on while we were sitting there working on a test and trying to do the best we could in that situation. But I've said it before and I'll, I'll happily say it again. The SBI test is probably the only test in the world that's mostly developed by fire regulators mm. and not scientists. <laughs> and uh, a lot of groups of interests from uh, manufacturers through fire laboratories to, through, as you said, governments who had some methods sorted out and, and they would be happy keeping that without big changes. Uh, large bodies of interest and in the middle of it, a bit of fire science. So that method actually makes some sense, right? Yes. Uh, to my best knowledge, it was somehow correlated with the outcomes of room corner tests. And there was this famous round robin test where multiple materials were tested in both room corner and SBI to show that results of SBI could be somehow used to predict potential outcomes of room corner, which then could be somehow used to, to establish a classification of or ranking of materials. P please correct me if I'm wrong. No. You're, you're, you're absolutely right, because if you look at it, every country had their own way of doing things. Mm. And, and if you, you're going to find a new way, harmonized way, you have to sort of go back to basics and say, what is it then we are trying to achieve with this test method? 
And that, that is what was done back then and say, okay, what we want to look at is fire in a room. We believe that, you know, that was seen as the most typical scenario, fire starting in a corner of the room. And then how would the different products then behave and feed that fire or, or help prevent the fire from growing, et cetera. Um, that is what we would like to try and measure here. So the idea was to see how can we simulate that in the test. And looking at existing tests, there was the room corner test, and that was seen. So we said the reference scenario that we were looking at was fire that started in the corner of a smallish room. Mm. Okay, next step is I say, okay, how can we how can we represent that? So so that's in what we call the large scale reference test. That was decided to be the room corner test that had been seen as, as a, as a well-established test at that, that time in, in the mid nineties and, and had been used in several research projects and a few countries outside of Europe had looked at it as well for, for regulatory purposes. So that was chosen to say, okay, we have those large scale reference test. So what we want to see is how products perform in that. And, and that's going to sort of be based for how it will be classified down the road. But testing every product to, to a large-scale test is expensive uh, and cost-prohibitive for, for, for some industries, et cetera. So it was agreed that we wanted like small-scale and, and intermediate-scale tests instead. This is why the SBI test came in as that intermediate-scale test. So the idea was that the test result in the SBI test should reflect the results that came from the room corner test. So that it all linked back to that scenario of a fire starting in a corner of a room. So the classification you obtain should link back to how would these products perform if they were mounted on the wall and or ceiling in a corner. So if SBI is intermediate, then what's a small one? A cone or a flame? So in, in, the, in the European system, as more, and you know, the small flame test, uh, is of course the first step on the classification scheme. And then, mm. then you have the, uh, um, kit of combustion as well. The, the, exactly. The bomb calorimeter and the non combustibility test. But I was, I mean, the cone calorimeter would have been a great small scale test mm. to have had as part of this. And you know, the Nordic countries were pushing for this in, in the early nineties. Uh, through that, I think it was called the Eurific project or something mm. like that. And a lot of work had already been done showing correlations between the cone calorimeter and, and the room corner. So, so that could have been a fairly easy transition, but that was not agreeable. So, so that's why I went down the route of inventing a new test based on these principles. C cone also has a lot of fire science behind it, actually. And uh, there has been brilliant, uh, lectures by Hostoretto about how uh, cone links to the, the just the, the flame spread on, on, on the solid body and, and how it actually answers the important questions that are necessary to solve the, the equations for this flame spread. Anyway, let's go back to the European testing um, regime. And I'm building up the, this whole uh, story of how SBI came to test because we're uh, later I want to understand why it has not prevented some of the stuff that happened. Anyway, at that time, you've chosen a bunch of different uh, materials that were used in, in different settings. In the report um, from SP, there's like 30 of them. There was, there was 30, 30 materials for the Rams album. That's a lot. And they were not just, they were not chosen particularly by the laboratories group. So, so the, the group that was de developing the test was called the official laboratories group. 
Mm. And they were not really the ones choosing uh, these materials. It actually came a list from the national fire regulators that was uh, in a group called the fire regulators group under the commission. So they were the ones saying, these are the tests that we want to have in this round robin and see how the system performs with these 30 materials. It's very interesting because, you know, these 30 materials that are the backbone of the system, let's make a bold assumption that the system works for these 30 materials. Does it work for any other material that's not on the list? You know, there there are some materials that came to existence after 1999. And I, I wonder, like, can you infinitely expand the system for, for the new materials without changing the system? Probably not. And that, that is, you're actually hitting <laughs> something really, really interesting here, right? So as we did the, so when we did the round robin, we did, we tested the products in, in the SBI. And then also all products were tested in the room corner test. So the SBI tests were done. You know, we did three tests in each laboratory. So 15 different laboratories in the SBI. So because we had to test both repeatability and reproducibility because mm-hmm. it was a test. Now, each of the materials were also tested just once in a room corner in a few different laboratories. One of them DBI, one of them was uh, uh, SP in Sweden. LSF, VTT. Yeah, LSF did some of them as well. So, and I think VTT as well, yeah. if I remember correctly. And each of us did a, some a group products. So, so the room corner test was only one test on that, whereas there was many on, on the SBI side, right? And the idea was then to see what that correlation between the two were. As we then were looking at the results afterwards, it became very clear that there was a group of materials already in the 30 that we have tested where this system does not work. Mm. And it was a few products that were specifically mentioned in that paper. And I think it's in that paper from SP, a report from SP on on this was uh, piping, electrical cables. We also had a polycarbonate a skylight material uh, and then metal metal face sandwich panels. These were where they, they was like so clearly there was not the behavior in the two different tests could not in any way be compared. And also that the setup with testing and this kind of test was not the right way to do it. And this was then foreseen in the system. By It came with what was from, from the commission, what was known as uh, the guidance paper G. And guidance paper G was uh, set up to allow for an alternative route view as, as an, you know, group of, so not a single manufacturer cannot go mm-hmm. for this. But a group of manufacturers or, or an industry association who could see that our type of products are not treated correctly in the SBI test. We would like to have an appeal procedure and go towards the large-scale reference test, the rule corner test, and then prove performance there. Or if you can see that even the room corner test might not be the correct, then apply for, well, what kind of large-scale reference test would be appropriate for this type of product and or mm. system? So that was all written down, nice process for doing this so that the system could develop as we develop new products, new methods of, of construction, et cetera. It, it was thought into that and it, it, it was successful for a few products right early on in the early 2000s. Um, one of them was pipe insulation. Mm. Uh, another one was electrical cables. Uh, a whole new project was set up then for that, and they defined their set of st- uh, tests. And, that was and today we it. have a specific test methodology for cables that is specific for that product, indeed, yes. Correct. So it, it worked really, really well for a while. 
and then it sort of died. And we have a lot of <laughs> new products developed all the time. And one yes. thing to mention, we're also we're mixing the use of product and material in, in this discussion. But oh, yes. Yeah, but it was certainly a, a, a material test from what I see it. It's not necessarily a, a product test. It's not a test for complex wall. Like you can game a lot by the surface, you know, you can, there, there's a lot of potential in here. I wonder to what extent this single approach could, could be considered like a truly universal, you know, from pipes to furniture. <laughs> That was a, a, a discussion that we had quite a bit, both during development, but even more through the the years after implementation. You know, when, when it was implemented, we started using the system in, in the early 2000s, uh, after 2002, when it was implemented. It was when we really started having those discussions about, well, is it actually material or is it product? Because in the SBI test standard, as well as in the uh, classification standard, it's test, it's mentioned specifically that products should be tested in end-use condition. Mm. And therefore, considering that what is behind this product and or material that I'm testing has an impact on the performance, which you and I as fire scientists know is, is very true. It definitely can. It, of course, also has an impact if you have a very fire protective covering in front of something that's higher combustible behind. Oh, my God, it became a long, drawn out discussion because, well, what does it mean to test in end use condition? And, and the discussion was, was rating mostly or firstly and, and, and very fiercely in, in the insulation industry, because what does it mean testing an insulation product in end-use condition? With water inside of the pipe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 is it actually the insulation material itself that I should test? Or is it the whole wall in which the insulation material is incorporated? Because that is its end-use. You, you never have an insulation material exposed on the wall, mm. you always will have it behind a plasterboard or something else, right? So you can imagine the discussion that was on, on one side and no, it, it, it means when, when the product gets a classification, the product should be exposed. And others said, no, 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 it's this end-use condition. Mm. And you can see where the, you can probably ima imagine the fault lines between those two discussions where, where the, they fell. And, and it, it's, it was really interesting because it made such a huge difference. If you have a highly combustible product, but you put it behind a plaster board, it'll perform really well on the SBI test. Mm. Uh, whereas if you expose it directly in the SBI test, it will not pass even uh, to class D. Mm. Uh, so it will be, you know, you can imagine the interest behind some of these things in, in the discussions. And it was, it was solved in that sense of, that the product that you put on the market, that is what you test and expose. But you would be allowed to then add an induced classification saying, mm. well, yes, if my product is supposed to perform like this, but if I, if it's mounted in real life behind plasterboard, then the assembly will perform like this. So it's not even what you, it's not just between material and product. It's also between product and assembly. Mm. And the SBI test, unfortunately, is a mishmash of it all and is confusing everything. And, uh, so, so let's briefly talk about the, the product. Now, this is a very European thing, the Euroclass system, but let's br briefly touch that so people worldwide can better relate. So if you, if you can explain Euroclass system in like, huh, you, you have two minutes, let's go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so you have a product you want to sell in the European market, you need a fire test. Yes. Not in the Euroclass system and, and you start bottoms up, you start with a small flame test. That really tries to, to that simply tests, is my product resistant to a small flame size of a, of a, of a match, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. 
If you pass that, next step up is the SBI test that is supposed to test your, your ability to, to withstand a flame spread and prevent flashover in a room or delay flashover in, in a small room. There's several different classes in the SBI. Uh, so, so you test to that, you measure the heat release and you are classified based on the fire, uh, the secret and, and the smoke rise, as they were called. I can't mm. remember what they were short of because it's a long time since. Fire growth time. rate and f- smoke growth uh, rate Thank something. You. Yeah. Thank you. I cannot figure the A, but uh, I, I got most of them. <laughs> well done. And this was, again, the whole product being exposed in, in this test. Now, if you then wanted to go up to the highest classes up in class A1 and A2, this is where suddenly you are diving into material level. So you would thought class A2, you would still do an SBI test on the product. But in addition to that, you would have to do either a, uh, a bomb calorimeter test on each of the materials or a non-combustibility test and fulfilling requirements for class A2 for those. And for class A1, you had to do, you had to do both the bomb calorimeter and the non-combustibility test for each of the materials. And in the end, you have a ladder from letter F to letter A, where F is, is the worst but tested. <laughs> and, yes. and, and A would be something, um, non-combustible or, or close to non-combustible, whatever exactly. non-combustible means. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, and that's another argument, right? A1 definitely would be what people would consider non-combustible. A2 is what many, including myself, would still consider non-combustible. Some would consider limited combustible. Mm. So it, it depends on where in the spectrum you fall on that one. So it sounds like a pretty decent ladder for products. Yes. But, but it, it wasn't by disaster, this system. It was designed by the market, by the need, by the uh, legislation. I guess the individual tests were designed by disaster. For example, the room corner probably with the realization of, of, I think it was in 70s or 80s, and I think it can be traced back to work of Zukowski, this corner, where, where right. it was shown that it, it has quadruple uh, speed of, of the growth of the fire if you place it on the corner, double when it's at the wall, and it's just a fire when it's in the middle. So, so that's probably that led to the realization that the corner setting is most likely leading to flash over the quickest. Uh, and this all goes back all the way to the 50s, 60s, first work on compartment fires, Kavagoa, Thomas. A lot of fire science in, in, involved and uh, a lot of disasters that led to this realization. But now you've obtained a system that there was no disaster that led to emergence of, of system that was market and harmonization. It was harmonization, exactly. And that, that's actually what's so unique about this whole history is that it was part of the harmonization project and not, as you say, this was not designed by disaster. It was, it was actually there was an attempt to have a logical system, a system where, where as you said, it's, it's a ladder that, that products can, can go through based on what we believe was the biggest hazard, flashover in a room that we wanted to prevent, as you said, based on research from many, many years before showing that combustible linings are at risk in our buildings, etc. So it was, there was a lot of, lot of good thoughts and a lot of good things that went into this. But it wasn't, it wasn't perfect in the end, far from, uh, because there was a lot of interesting powers behind all of this that, that constantly were tweaking things one way or another. So it sometimes became less science than most of us would have preferred. 
the urge is strong, uh, but I'm not going to follow that lead. <laughs> we all know about a certain paper that has been published lately that, that touches, uh, actually, that's a pretty good, it should be called science novel, that paper. Yes. And uh, by, by Angus Lowe, Graham Spinard, and Luke Bisbee. I'm going to link to show notes if, if someone would like to learn the juicy background of, of this uh, rise of Euroclass. But I, I'm, I'm not interested. I, I am interested in that, but in here, I, I would like to understand. Okay. We, we had the classification developed, uh, not by disaster. We had science introduced to answer some questions about how tests can be scaled and can one test predict the results of another that, that's science actually that that's very interesting fire science and now this leads to a system which i guess you could expect it prevents disaster because you now have this classification and assuming you deploy that you can distinguish fire safe solutions from unsafe solutions and uh, people at power can say okay you should use this class in in this setting you should use this class in another setting because obviously, if we made a non-combustible world, it, it would be maybe the fire safest. I don't know if it actually would, but there's um, merits to use different materials for different uh, solutions. And now we uh, end up in the world where you can use a Euroclass for almost anything, but still we have residential fires with a lot of fatalities. We still have uh, buses and trains that, that burn down, even though there is reaction to fire requirements, at least for the trains. We do have disasters like Grenfell, uh, where facades are are burning vigorously, and it's not just a you know Grenfell is a very harsh example, and there's uh, a lot of things that went into that horrible fire. But I can build a facade using only materials of Euroclass B, and I mm-hmm. and it's gonna I can make it very very horrible. I, I wonder uh, is disaster necessary to 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 make a fire safe solution like why couldn't our sophisticated 20 years of research and effort prevent things like like Grenfell from happening but what do you think we achieved with this system and and where we lacked that's a difficult question sorry <laughs> you know it's a, it's an extremely interesting uh, train of thoughts there so so if we go back to what we talked about how it that it was all developed it based on mm. the room for this test. When he ended up with the system and we have this guidance paper, uh, G, the possibility of mm. an appeal procedure, I actually think we had a really solid system and mm. something that was good to go forward. But as I also told you, yeah, it worked nicely for a bit where we were allowing some of these appeal procedures and so on, and people were pushing for that. And then that died off. And what happened is that in many people's mind, SBI just became the test. It became the truth Oracle. and the link to the room corner and the original thinking started dissipating very quickly because, you know, it was a lot easier to do an ISSBI test than a room corner test. And then we run into this problem that the SBI test really was struggling between, as, as you very correctly pointed at, is it a material test? Is it a product test? Is it an assembly test? When we are talking about facades, we are talking about putting these whole assemblies into the SBI test Mm. and putting a 30 kilowatt burner on them. What in real life does that resemble? Mm. Nothing. But yet, that is how we then allow some of these to say they are class B. And you're not even putting a facade. You're putting, you can put materials. 
Then you can then test each of the separate materials as well, mm-hmm. test them, and they can get their nice class B. And then when you put them together in a big assembly out in real life, something completely different can happen. Mm-hmm. And this is where there's this huge disconnect in the system between the products and the assemblies that mm-hmm. happens in real life. And that has never truly been solved. So one of the ways it was argued right from the beginning with the SBI test and with the whole system, because we were talking fire in a corner of a room, Mm. everybody knew this is not a facade test. Mm. This is a test that's designed to reflect uh, internal linings. So facades were not really thought of this. It was always in the mind of Santisi 127 and other groups back then that facades were going to be the next on this. Yeah, but this Birgit, is what we at that time, facades were not built out of polymers. It was uh, concrete. It was steel. It was simple glazing. You didn't have this super complex facade system 1999. It, well, you did in some places. Uh, you, you had started seeing it in Germany with the attic Okay, so system. as emerging, okay. It, it was it was emerging in back then, but but yeah, you know, again, you got to go to a critical mass of systems before we start seeing the problems, right? So so anyway, we were arguing that the SBI test was not appropriate for facades. Here comes uh, the commission; didn't really want to deal with this. No, we've solved the fire problem. We've done we've done the SBI test. We've done the Euroclass system, right? And so so the it was so difficult to get moving get it moving on having a large-scale test for facades at the European level. And we are still not there, as I know. We are close with the work that's been going on, but I don't believe we have a set standard yet for a large-scale facade test, do we? Yeah, if if we can go there. And I'm not sure if we will have. Like, now to think about why SBI happened, why this method was chosen. It was convenient. Yes. It was fairly quick. It was easy to deploy in any fire laboratory. Like you didn't need a 20 megawatt hood to deploy SBI. You just Correct. needed 10 square meters and some exhaust. And for manufacturers, the sample is small, very quite cheap, I would say. The test is cheap. So, so in the end, uh, I would assume a lot of popularity of this test comes from the fact it's cheap and easy. That's how I, I would call it. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't actually call it the easiest test in the world because it has the the heat release measurement. It does. It does require the fact that you have a bit of knowledge behind. But that's the that's the apparatus. Like as yes. as long as you build the apparatus correctly and you make this one time investment and you gain the capability of doing the test, just simply running the test is not a very difficult thing to do. Correct. Correct. And also it didn't disrupt markets too much. Okay, yeah, that's true. And that, uh, and that had a big thing to do with it as well. Mm. So if we then suddenly required every product that was going to be used in a facade to be tested as part of an, a facade assembly, can you imagine the cost to be able to put those products on the market? It, it would be huge. So, so of course there wasn't an interest in going down that route. But that leaves us in the situation that, yes, you can perfectly well test products and get a nice class B on them for each and every one of them. And then you can put them together into a facade system. And unfortunately, the combination of those are deadly. But I, I find this still a challenge, even in the, at the emergence of the 
of the European large-scale test method because the large-scale method is exactly opposite of, of the strengths of SBI I've mentioned. It's going to be difficult to deploy in any laboratory because you yes. need quite a significant building to handle that that method. Even though, even if you don't measure heat release rate, you still need a very large hood and facility to handle such a big fire. It's oh. going to be painfully slow because you need to build a very large facade to test it. Yes. And uh, there's a big difference if you're building two or three meter tall facade and building something that's eight meters tall. You suddenly need scaffoldings. You need a way to rise. It it seems like not a very big difference, but in terms of how, of the preparation of the test, it is a massive, massive change of of Which preparation. Is. And most likely, it's going to be quite expensive to run because you yes. will not SBI. My guys can do twelve a day on a good day. Big facility. Exactly. You need it, the SBI. You can run fairly quickly. It, the test samples are easy to to put together, etc. No, you're absolutely right. The large scale facade test that that is that requires a, that's a completely different ballgame, cost wise, etc. But this is the challenge that we have with our, our modern systems and and these assemblies that are so complicated. Use of cladding, insulation, etc. A small scale test won't be able. Yet we and we haven't found a way through small scale tests to replicate the, the complicated interactions between the different materials in those. And therefore, in order for us to get at least an idea of their performance in real life, we have to go large scale. Mm. Otherwise, we are, we, we're in a situation where we don't know what's going to happen when we combine these products into an assembly. That, that's an interesting point of view that terrifies me because uh, all these tiny details that play in uh, yep. such a setting of a facade, uh, the more I research that, the more horrified I am how small details, you know, cavity barriers, the way how you make the cavity, the gaps between the e e external boards, the fixings. There are so many tiny details that make can make or break facade tests. That oh, yeah. And also, it's possible to design a test which almost no systems will pass. It's also not the point to ban everything. Like, we need right. to find solutions that are safe enough. And I wonder if we can accomplish that with the safe. So so now we are at designing by disaster. We had huge disasters. And can we solve that? I think we can, but not not tomorrow. And I think it takes much more of a science approach than, than what we have had until now. Um, it's always been my dream that we would be able to base our, our design of these systems instead of large scales and more on the modeling based on knowledge as performance of each of the different components, but we're not there yet. We don't have those tools yet. So, but so until we have, we have to find another way. And even, even a large scale test is, yeah, it will help some, mm. but it won't prevent all disasters. So let's, let's look at the UK and they don't have a facade test mm, yeah. and it was developed based on a disaster and they have it implemented and now they have another disaster. Because there were still some things that had not been considered in their regulatory system that could creep their way into the buildings and, and create this. There's many other reasons for the disaster in Grenfell. Uh, I'm not going to get into that uh, at all. But um, The existence of the test doesn't prevent disaster. That's, that's, that's it. Yes. If you have a test that is fit for solving your issue, you really should use it uh, to solve your issue, not, not find the ways around it because of, of various reasons, political, financial, comfort, it, speed. Exactly. 
And there you also, you were pointing to a thing that I think is extremely important for us to consider here. When, when we are then looking at big complicated tests, like, like a big facade test, mm-hmm. you can make sure that when, when, when a manufacturer or, or whoever's testing is doing this test, they're building up the perfect system. Yeah. They are making sure that everything is done right. And that's the system that they test. If it fails, the test, they will figure out, oh, it was this that failed. They will adjust and they will test again. We only know about the system that passed in mm. the end. That's what's put on the market. That's the information that we get. We don't know about all the failures that came before. And each of those failures that came before speaks to a weakness in the system that the market is not made aware of. Now you take this complicated system and you put it in the hands of installers And some installers can be highly trained and will do a great job and install a wonderful system as great as was tested. Others might not know that the fact that they have taken a shortcut on the construction side somewhere that they thought was benign from based on their thinking of a facade system is protecting from the rain and the wind and snow and so on. Uh, They're not thinking fire. Mm. They might not know that that little change that they did or that little thing where they cut a corner can have a catastrophic impact in case of a fire. And so this, this is why it becomes really complicated. We don't know this and we don't, we don't talk about it enough out there. The importance of training of the installers, of, of being very clear about the weaknesses of the system. No manufacturer wants to go out there and say, yeah, I got a great system that passes this test, but be careful of this and this and this because then it'll fail. Nobody wants to go out and say that. And unfortunately, we somehow actually need that. For example, work that Cross is doing at UK in, in sharing some of these doubts that would normally go uh, hidden. That, that's a brilliant thing. And we definitely need more of that, you know. I yes. think maybe, maybe this 20, 30 years ago, maybe laboratories felt that, like, because laboratories have this knowledge. It's, it's just uh, very difficult to go from laboratory, laboratory having a knowledge and laboratory sharing a knowledge. A lot of reasons in terms of liability, client owned information, general rules of, of not sharing information. Laboratory is, is essentially a judge and, and we are not allowed to talk about solutions of our clients because that's proprietary information from, from the clients. But laboratories can talk between each other, you know, in the tests of this particular element, this fails always. Yeah, it does fail always. But, but that's the kind of information that then needs to get into the standardization. Exactly. World, and uh, in, I'm in the regulatory world, right? Uh, uh, and- and I'm not sure if that's this. I'm not sure if this path. I guess it exists because a lot of laboratory representatives are in the commissions, in various commissions in, in Europe, at least. Yes. Uh, I, I just wonder if they're brave enough to do that. Not sure. From my experience back then, I would say sometimes they are, sometimes not, and I, and I totally understand a very, very different, difficult situation you can find yourself in as a laboratory, right? In, in, in and that- it shouldn't be a case of bravery. It should be just a system that that leads to use of that uh, secret knowledge for the betterness of the citizens of Europe, right? It, exactly, and this is where the maybe one of the things that we have to think about going forward is is not so much constantly chasing the perfect tests, but more chasing how can we get this information out in people's hands in a way that it becomes useful even when they fail? How can we share failures as well as successes from the test world to learn from this? 
And we can't expect that that manufacturers will start doing that on their own because it will put them in in a very bad situation competitively, right? Mm. So you would have to create a level playing field by have some rules for how to share this. And maybe that's part of the way to solve some of this problem. Is yeah. there even just a way we can share data with having things being taken out product names and so on? So at least we can share some kind of information. That would be great. It would be one of the things that truly move us forward. And yes. now, you know, we're in develop. Let, let, let's say we're developing now a, a fantastic standard that that will give us the capability to assess the current. Uh, let's say facade systems. We're talking about facades today. So let's start. let's say we're developing this. Do you think it's gonna be feature proof? Like. Like 30 years ago or 20 years ago when SPI was developed, it was this bunch of 30 materials that uh, that were the cornerstone of that. Today, we, we have a certain set of tests done over the Europe to develop this large type of facade tests that we will use for future facade systems. Five years from now, we're going to have, let's say, photovoltaic assemblies attached to each facade. And someone will say, okay, it's not a part of facade, it's an external uh, device placed on a facade. How do we prevent problems with that? We're now testing living wall systems, which are extremely complicated and interesting. Uh, If you ask me, does this new European test method solve the problem of living wall systems? I already can see not necessarily. So I I wonder, like, to what extent we are a hostage of our today's knowledge and to what extent future will, uh, again, catch us uh, in not a very comfortable place. Yeah, again, touching on something that, that I have been talking about a few times. I know uh, that's before. why I invited you here. We as a fire science community and fire testing community, et cetera, and, and coaches and science, we're always playing catch up. Yeah, We are always coming after the systems have been developed, after the products have been developed. And there, that is why we, we will never be able to, to develop a future proof test because mm-hmm. we are not part of the discussions now about the systems that will be coming 10 years down the road. Mm-hmm. Because they don't want to invite us in. We, we are the, we are the difficult ones, right? We are the ones destroying all these great ideas saying, if it burns, you can't do that. And that, that is a huge problem that, that we have that we are not part of the product development. We are not part of, of looking at how could the buildings of tomorrow be. It, you know, goes to, to another area where we keep pushing, say, this whole talk about, you know, energy efficiency, sustainability, and so on. We fire people are not part of it. We are not in the discussions about, well, what technology should we have to make buildings more sustainable? What should we do for decarbonization? We are not part of those discussions until we have a disaster. It's like, oh, yeah, we probably should have thought about fire. And we get back to the design by disaster. We see, okay, apparently the test we had didn't consider these new developed materials. So unless we get better at, at joining those conversations, we will always be behind. I want to what extent the future fire engineers can be blamed for believing our tests are applicable, you know, to, to their future problems. In the same way as we believe that, for example, Euroclass system is a solution to flammability for, for a decade, whereas now more and more examples emerge where it's, it's not enough, where you have to look into assembly, like we just discussed, right? 
and and uh, can we uh, help future engineers not do the same mistake? I hope so, and that that's you know up to to all of you that that are educating the next generations, right? To make sure that they also have that understanding and and the basic science to also be able to question the existing existing system, because the problem arises when we take the system as it is, as the eternal truth. And it's, look, if it's behaved well in the SBI, of course it's a fire-safe product. No, you have to question it and, and, and look at it and say, well, what was the intention with the SBI? And is that intention correct for this product that we have here? This is why I'm, I'm really happy with that paper that came out, because it reminds people of the history. Yeah, And that's why I'm super excited that you invited me here today as well, because I have a chance of, of, of relivering some of that history with you so that the new generation of fire protection and fire safety engineers are aware of it. So they know, oh, that's what DSBI was supposed to be. Um, okay, maybe then it's not right for what I'm trying to do here. And, and usually as an argument for that, it's great to use this product over here. So that I think that's extremely important for the new generation to be aware of both the strengths and the limitations of our testing regimes all the way through. And it's not just in Europe, it's also in the US. Of course. And, and, and be critical, uh, be, ask questions. Is this appropriate for the application? I think it's really important to consider that. What is the application that we are working on here? What test that I have here, is it appropriate for that? I mean, don't even get me started talking about the Steinatol that's used in the U.S. I mean, if people are picking on the SBI, I'll pick on the Steinatol, right? Which, which always gets me in, in trouble over here on this side of the pond, but it, it's always a fun, fun discussion. But that, you know, you have to question. Yeah. And, and if they don't, they will get into trouble. And I think, yes, at some point, they will then be held responsible. We've seen that in some places. And I also believe the more fire science is involved, like I think scientific method can be an answer to many questions. Yes. But the true scientific method, not the one that, that's lobbied. Like I can tell you, like you have to have this and this heat of combustion to claim that your material is not uh, participating in a fire. And you can tell me, yeah, you know what? I have this funny material that's just one megajoule above that limit. Can we move it a little bit uh, to accommodate? Uh, so... What starts with the fire science ends when you have lobbying. And uh, I also believe looking for the chaps on the market side, it's kind of brutal. You know, they have to fight for this certificate. It's very difficult for these manufacturers to really show what their product is doing, because in the end, it's always going to be used against them <laughs> in a way. Like whatever you say was, is going to be used against you. That's always the danger, right? But, but let's, not, let's not be blind to the fact that, that a manufacturer will design to the test method. Yeah. And when it comes to the fire performance, they're not designing to the, the end use. They're designing to the test method that's because true. that's what gives them the access to the market. That's how they prove. And, and, and they can write and say, I have passed this test. I show this before my product is good. So that, that's what we have to keep in mind. And this is, you know, as you said, well, what could we do potentially going for? What, one of my other dreams is that, well, maybe we never should have classifications. Hmm. This is arbitrary. Well, here we're talking reaction to fire. Over here, we're talking fire resistance. We don't talk how, you know, what the, structures are made out of where we only talk about their resistance over here we're mm. talking all about what they're made of and how their flammability and so on is right 
I wish we were much more on a, on a gradual scale of performance. Mm. And I think that's the only, you know, one of the only ways we could solve this going forward is, is get to true scientific based performance parameters that are being tested and then declared for the products so that fire safety engineers can take these and make a design based on it. Yeah. What a beautiful world would that be, right? Oh God, yes. Let's build let, let's build one for our children. That would be that would be great. It it would be, right? But it's yeah, exactly. Imagine the stress of the manufacturer. What do you mean I'm not testing to a class? Yeah. What do you mean I can't achieve? Uh, what do you mean I can't call my product non-combustible? I oh, guess yeah. you know what I, I think it takes uh few brave who then succeed uh, if they succeed. Because if they fail, it's not gonna work. But it takes a few brave who succeed and then uh many others will follow. I, I hope that's that's the case. Let, let's end this depressing episode with this uh, with this <laughs> promising thought that the future may actually be nice and fire safe. I'm giving myself a plus in American system. You've tried like five times to move me into the data, and I've resisted the urge <laughs> <laughs> because I want to have another episode with you, Birgit. Uh Thank you very much for coming and and having this uh, hopefully interesting uh, discussion. Another, I'm going to call it a amateur philosophy in fire science episodes. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Well, thank thank you. I, I truly enjoyed it as well. And 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 as I said, thank you, thank you for having me relive uh, some of that history and and help making sure that the the younger generation is aware of it. I'm I, I'm a little sad to hear that you find it a depressing episode. <laughs> no, I'm just rather that. Let's rather think about it as uh, necessary for us to understand in order yes. so that we move forward even safer. It's maybe not uh, depressing. It's it's cleansing and and <laughs> refreshing. And I hope it shows a way forward. And uh, I hope this way will be discovered by the the future generation of fire engineers. I Guys, so the, the, don't believe our standards are <laughs> great for your materials. If you're listening fire science show in 2030, I, I wonder what test methods you have, and I hope you're doing good job with them. Thank you, uh, Birgit. Thank you, Moisha. Uh, and that's it. Okay, now I owe Birgit an apology. It was not a depressing episode. I've listened to it once again while editing and it was full of inside openness, honesty and uh, willingness to build something better for the future. There's nothing wrong in saying that some things that did not work out as planned. There's nothing wrong in saying that the standards may not be future-proof. Actually, I find this encouraging to speak so openly about the limitations of the current system because sometimes these limitations can turn into disasters, which we don't want to have as our only motivation for uh, development and growth. I hope this was interesting to, to all of you. It was certainly very interesting to me. I, I really love having such a deep, honest, open conversations in the podcast. And this is not the first one where we criticize or just talk openly about the fire testing regime. There has been an episode with Anya Bullinghouse Hoffman about bus flammability. There was an episode with Pat Trukowski about fire resistance. Now, now this episode, there's also an episode with Ruben Van Coyle, if you've missed that where Ruben proposes a completely new pathway uh, for, for new fire safety. And uh, actually, after we stopped recording with Birgit, we've briefly discussed that, wow, that may be it. That may be the trick that we need to actually advance in a completely different way, different manner that we have been advancing so far. 
it doesn't mean that the system is not working completely or that the system is built with some wrong principles in mind. It's, it's built the best way that the people before us knew. And we you just have weaknesses, like everything in the world. It, it's not fail-proof. And with the emergence of new materials, with the emergence of new solution assemblies, new things that we consider important, sustainability, circular economy, and stuff like that, we will definitely need more open minds and uh, much better uh, view on safety than, than just blindly following standards without even questioning where they came from and what they were applicable to. So once again, Birgit, thank you so much for this conversation. I hope you've all enjoyed it. And yeah, more great stuff coming your way next Wednesday. So see you here again. Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.